Good evening, and uh, and welcome to Comics Experience Craft Novel Month Club for this is the month of September. Oh, sweet. Uh, and our book is Come Again, here and there. We have two cameras. Um, uh, and our author is is Nate Powell, who's hey, here. Hey, and hey, you're spending this. This is vaguely a new experience. Yeah. Is this where I am actually allowed to look straight into the camera? Yes, look straight in the camera. Yeah, do it. Like, hello, non-existent people who really exist somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, there, there could be people watching us on the live stream, though. Okay. There usually isn't. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, everybody goes live stream. What a great idea. Then no one watches it. It's the craziest thing. Um... Uh, but we do it anyway because we love you that much. Um, uh, but yeah, no, people will be watching this kind of for the rest of time. So any answer that you give, make sure you understand that you're giving it for the rest yeah. of time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, the book has come again and, and Nate Powell's here and I'm, I'm pretty excited. Um, you have a very interesting career and uh, I think this will be an interesting talk. Um, You've been, as I understand it, you've been you've been making your own mini comics since you were fourteen. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry, drawing comics when I was twelve, and uh, yeah, right when I turned fourteen, started self-publishing. Yeah. Uh, so that was the beginning of ninth grade, nineteen ninety-two, and it was the the peak of the comics boom of the early nineties. Sure. But my uh, my local my one local shop owner in North Little Rock, Arkansas, in the late seventies and early eighties. He did some self-publishing, so he had just enough of the soft spot that he gave us. He gave my my collaborator and I some very crucial shelf space. Is this Michael Tierney? Michael Tierney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did Wild Stars, we did, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. See, I'm, I'm old school. I, I know what I'm I just about. saw him last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do nice. signings at his store still. Nice, nice, nice. Super nice. Um, were you, was he, he was buying the stuff outright from you? No, we, we did a 60-40 consignment. Wow. Deal. And uh, 60 to you, 60 to the store, 60 to me. Very good. Yeah. All right. That's more, that's more generous than we do kids. And actually I was, I was photocopying the, the interiors for almost free, but we were spending a dollar a piece to make color covers. Cause right. Sure. You know, we're like, well, comics have colors. Sure. Covers. Sure. So it's like pre-internet Arkansas sure. with a drought of non superhero books. So yeah, it's like, you know, Fine and dandy, dystopian guns and boobs. But yeah, the entire, literally the entire budget was to have a color cover, which, you know, I colored it with, you know, like markers. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's good. It's yeah. a color. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I was like, why don't we have any money to make more? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you were precocious enough at 12 to think that, like, that, that you, that was, you could do it. That's amazing to me. Well, a lot of that's like Little Rock. I, I was intertwined with the underground do-it-yourself punk scene at the same time that that my friend Mike and I were part of a group of six or eight other, you know, two-bit cartoonists in central Arkansas. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the DIY ethic really carried across every part of my life. Nice. And uh, just knowing slightly older kids who had, you know, tapes or records of their band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put out zines. All of a sudden, that was immediately translatable to the shirts we were doing. Like, oh, right, you just print those too. Sure, but even here, I mean, my memory was is everybody was doing music and was doing zines and zines about music mostly. Sure. And it was all about music. Was you know when you're a teenager, and so why comics? Why why what was it about comics that made you think 
this is the thing. Uh, well, I'd say, well, the I started reading comics at age three and never looked back. And I started drawing at age three, but I didn't put the two interests together mm. actively until my friend Mike Lyerly, who was my strongest early collaborator and later bandmate and lifelong best friend. Mm-hmm. It took him, he had been drawing comics for like two years before me. Uh, he was the old dog. But it actually, it's, it's, I feel like it's important for you to communicate. He had to say the words, we should make comics together. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was almost like a magical invocation. Once he said it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, we should. And I just never, ever looked back. And yeah. before that, I had not thought that I could actually draw sequential comics instead of just drawing cool ninjas and wizards sure 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 uh, and that like verbalizing the intention changed everything yeah 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 i can totally see that um uh yeah your early comics that you're doing i mean how many copies are you printing how, how are we making that happen the first one was 105 copies wow and all the early ones the first couple the superhero ones were all 50 to 100 copies uh and then once i and basically that was the office where my dad worked had a copy machine, mm-hmm. and there was a bu- 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 busted copy machine in the church that our families went to. Mm-hmm. And so each one of those, we would just photocopy them until the machine broke, and right. we would slowly <laughs> like back out of the room. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, let's say hypothetically that in the 90s, at particular photocopying corporations, there were a series, hypothetically, of scams that could be done to get hypothetically free cops. Sure, sure. Um, but along the way, because like hypothetically, one couldn't get busted doing that. Right. So whether it was my dad's copy machine or the one at a hypothetical place, mm-hmm. as a teenager, I developed a second skill set that was photocopier repair. Right. And I got very good at troubleshooting and fixing photocopiers <laughs> as like a ten, as a tenth grader. And it was just really weird to be like, I've got this shit inside uh-huh. and out. Uh-huh. I can do it all. Uh-huh. Uh, and so basically until the year 2000, it was all photocopies. But at a certain point, when my band started touring and and the things got a little bit more distributed, even though the copies were still hypothetically free, I was spending so much time collating now like yep. 1,400 copies of yeah. the comic that I didn't have time to draw them. And I didn't know what to do next. Yeah. And it took until I got a self-publishing grant uh, my last year at school that I could actually put money into having them offset printed. Yeah, fourteen hundred copies. That's a that's a really that's a ton of copies. That's I you know when I think about people bringing me self-published books, I know they're selling five and ten in each local store. Like print runs are fifty and a hundred, and wow, that you've got it up to fifteen hundred. That that really kind of blows my mind. Is that something that's specific to the culture that was happening in Little Rock at the time? Well, or? it's the way that Little Rock's... I, I I would sell an okay amount in Arkansas at a couple of shops. Really, this has much more to do with Little Rock being one of the best cities in America uh, for underground punk to happen mm-hmm. in the 1990s. Uh, and so we became, thanks to my... Thanks to folks a couple of years older than me, uh, we were woven into this network of young creative people and through their bands touring and then our generation's bands touring, there was this sort of 
back and forth by which people at first would trade zines or records and trade ideas and then would trade touring schedules. And then I started to do uh, artwork and, co and write columns for a punk zine out of California. That's this state. <laughs> called Heart Attack. And uh, really, like, it, it had to do with the expansion, and especially as I aged and was able to actually drive across the country and stuff. But all this was in person, pretty much on site. There was also a local... Uh, there's an underground book and zine distribution company out mm -hmm. that happened to be out of Little Rock mm -hmm. that started taking on, you know, 50 or 100 copies right. of books. Right. You don't, you don't usually as associate most cartoonists with being outgoing, being salespeople, right? I mean, you know, because it's a solitary profession yes. in a lot of ways, right? You're sitting at the, the drawing board, you know. Um, is, there, is there something that you attribute that to? Uh, I think, well, I think even before I started playing shows in my band, like the few times I had to get up on stage for like a piano recital or to be in like a junior high play, I, I wasn't totally comfortable doing it, but I did not have stage fright. Mm -hmm. So by the first show my band ever played, uh, that wasn't a problem. Right. And I think that helped. And also we wore outrageous costumes and did humiliating things and forced the audience to do funny and humiliating right. things. So like our entire, our entire thing was breaking down the artifice and mm -hmm. coolness. Sure. And so I think once we got into a much more socially awkward subculture, yeah. like comics, yeah. um, I feel like I was, that part of me was predisposed to, to just not have, not have time for the kinds of anxiety, like, I had different anxieties. About sure, that. sure, sure. I get it. That, like, I kind of squashed that. Yeah, yeah. And I could spend my other time freaking about freaking out about other. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you said three was the first comic. Do you, you? What's the first comic you remember oh. reading? Well, the first comic I read was chronologically, mm -hmm. like the ones that I dug through was mm -hmm. the first appearance of Rocket Raccoon. It was Hannibal yeah. Hulk two eighty. Wow. Uh, what I mean, what an incredibly random comic book! I still have it, sure yeah. sure yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, uh. But the first comic I was into, like yeah. it was really it was thanks to Wonder Woman, Spider Man, and the Hulk being on TV at the same yeah, time. Yeah, sure. That's how I got into comics. Yeah. Uh, but it was the Wonder Woman run that Dan Mishkin and Gene Kalan mm -hmm. did in the early '80s. That was my first mm -hmm. comics run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I still have those issues, and it's really wild. Like I did a I did a little talk at. Michigan State a few years ago just gave a little slideshow like here's some comics and I started I started off talking about Wonder Woman and these weird pages that intrigued me mm -hmm. uh, as a three-year-old mm -hmm. and then my mm -hmm. crude drawings of Wonder Woman mm -hmm. as a three-year-old mm -hmm. and it turns out that Dan Mishkin the writer was in the audience he was, ah. he was like I wrote all those books that's funny <laughs> wow now we're buddies wow that's <laughs> super cool wow uh, were your were your parents buying you these comics? Were you were you buying them yourself on uh, newsstand, or did you well, buy them from the comic shop? I started buying my own comics when I was probably six. Once okay. I started getting like three dollars a week, right, for cleaning my room, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, obviously, it's a balancing act. Do yeah. you do you buy, you know, candy? Do you buy candy, or do you buy like a weird Voltron thing yeah. that's going to break, or do you buy some comics? Yeah. But yeah, quickly the balance started tipping towards comics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's neat. 
It's it's no, it's interesting because you know we 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 talk about the newsstand and things like that, but it's actually kind of rare that you get people who are buying comics as a kid. Sure, all the way. Like it's usually the parents are bringing them in and going, "Hey, comics," you know. Yeah. Well, my parents very quickly kicked down their leftover collections. Oh, nice. My dad, I've got his, most of his thrown out, uh, but my mom had a good amount. Uh, of just 1950s comics that she gave me. It was mostly like Little Lulu yeah. and uh, Shaggy Dog Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty quick. They, they encouraged me to actually go to the comic book store, though. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the first store I went to was inside an independent bookstore. Right. I, it sounds cooler than it is. Yeah. It, was, it was in Alabama. So yeah. it's like it was the bookstore. Right. But they actually, when I look back or when I think back, they actually. The bookstore owners spent time. They had back issue sections. Sure. Uh, when I was like eight years old, I started reading pre-merchandised, still kind of underground Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, and I was like, what is this? Like, it's in it's in black and white. It literally looks dirty. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't understand mm-hmm. what, what the comic was. Uh, and I remember uh, Scott McCloud put out a book when I was eight called Destroy. Destroy. Yeah. 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 So I recently finally got on eBay, but it was like the thing that when I spotted it in the rack as an eight-year-old, uh, I was like, what is this? Yeah. And then it says, like, asshole during yeah. a double-page spread. Yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. I was like, you can say bad words yeah. in comics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I was like, oh, you know, I was like, <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a 38-year-old at a certain point, I was like, I'm going to buy that goddamn Destroy comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you so you went to school at some point for... I did go to school. No, for... For... Oh, yes. Specifically for yeah. drawing, for illustration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A general college at first? Uh, no, well, I went to one year of school at, at a, a regular college. Mm-hmm. Mostly because... General college? Yeah. It, yes. At a standard college, yeah. see? <laughs> basically, I, I didn't... I, I was a, quote, good student. Yeah in high school but i did not ever think about college right so basically it was like too late for me to <laughs> to like sort out my life and yeah. realize what i wanted to do with my life so i had a very i'd already like signed up i had just enough scholarship money and loans and stuff that i could go to a year of some college but i had, I had a very emotional experience listening to the bruce springsteen live box set in which i realized that I always knew that I was that I needed to draw comics, and that was the thing I needed to pursue. And that was my like stereotypical like, "Mom, Dad, you can't keep me down." Right. And I had to like write them a thing where I was like, "I'm gonna go to school of visual arts. Right. I'm gonna be a comic artist." And that's what I did. How how long SVA? I want to say like from what I think of your age was just starting their comics program around that time. Oh, no. Right? No? In, in fact, I don't know it exactly, but I know they had the very first cartooning major in the country. Mm. But I also know that at the latest, in the 60s, okay. they had cartooning majors because co-founder of Punk Magazine, John Holmstr- mm. Holmstrom, was a student of Harvey Kurtzman's and Will Eisner's okay. in the cartooning department there. Okay. And that would have been, well, the early 70s. But I think when they started in 47, they had it. Like, okay. they, they were... They were but, like, but like a newspaper cartooning oh, sure. uh, rather than... Sure. Rather than yeah. comics, as as we understand, because they're different yeah. things, right? Yeah. Functionally, right? Like, structurally, yes. they're they're very different things. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um... 
you're you're in this really curious place where as a young kid you're making money off comics i'm i'm really impressed by this i i'm sorry to keep going back to it but when i think about a lot of people's careers they go into comics and and like for years they still don't make money even working like at marvel and dc right and you just were doing your own stuff and making comics and right but i was putting but still like the money that I was making because I was trying to figure out how to get out of the trap of actually producing the yeah. comics, all of the money was still going into making more comics. Yes. Uh, so it was, a, it was becoming a sustainable thing except for the time and labor. Yeah. Uh, but it, it still wasn't leading the eternal cycle. I was, it was understood. I wasn't buying a sandwich out of it. Understood. Understood. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, under, understood. And in, and in fact, my understanding is that like from 99 to 2009, something like that, you were, you were working with, uh, uh, Elmanly, yeah, yeah. so right. people, yeah. My that was my career mm -hmm. for a decade, and really, it wasn't until four years ago that I was pretty sure that I became pretty sure that I could keep doing full time cartooning. So, for like the first five years of being a full time cartoonist, every three months, I would crunch numbers and like just make sure that if I needed to call my old employer up, that I could potentially mm -hmm. give my job back. Uh, and, you know, the joy of that is that it was work that I valued and still value, and I was good at it. So, like, I, I don't know. I, if that still, if that were to go down, I really wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel deflated about it at all. Like, yeah. Uh, I, there's a lot of me that actually misses that. I think once my kids get older and I start to get a little bit more free time, uh, I'll probably re-enter the workforce uh without much regard for making money doing the work, but yeah, maybe putting in 10 or 15 hours a week doing, uh, doing care and advocacy. Yeah, nice. That's interesting, yeah. When, is, uh, so, so you're doing this for 10 years and you're making comics, so you're making comics at night mm -hmm. on the weekends in your free time. How, so how did you make that break? The Right, because you, you described it as a trap, which I, I think is, is really accurate, you know, because as a young creative person, you want certainly. <laughs> well, it's like, well, part of it is like you, yeah. As a young person, you don't see the things that you're doing wrong that are preventing you from getting where you think you want to. Sure. Go. So, like, I had a bunch of friends who are, you know, my classmates at SBA, and they were like taking Marvel and DC and Nickelodeon internships. Right. They stayed in New York City over the summer. I was going home. To, like everything was revolved around my band. Okay. So like, uh, you know, my class assignments were things that I wanted to do already for my comics and zines. And I was like booking tours on the phone while doing my homework. And then the second school would get out, I would go back to Arkansas and get ready to tour or record. Yeah. Um, so it took until that band played itself out and was no longer a sustainable thing uh, that I realized I had been scheduling, organizing my entire life around the schedule of that band. Yeah, yeah. So A, as soon as the band became defunct in 2006, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I do have the time to make a 200 page book, mm -hmm. which was Swallow Behold, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. instead of just always making 30 or 50 page stories. Yep. Um, but then by that point, 
like all the way up to 2008, I'd completely given up on the possibility of being able to make a living off of comics. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. Like I was, I was doing my thing and that was fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jim and Mark from the writers of The Silence of Our Friends um, cold called me somehow one day in the fall of 2008 wanting to know if I could draw The Silence of Our Friends. Right. Uh, and they said they had the script and all this stuff. Uh, but because I had already, this is where your the box that you put yourself in changes the way that you're receiving information. Because I had already figured out that I couldn't make a living off comics. Yes. I was like, but I'm not, I, I said I couldn't, I turned them down actually. Right. I was like, but it takes me years to make my own stuff. Right. If I work on this, I won't be able to do my own. I've got right. this full-time job. Right. And then one time... There was, you know, like a conscious voice in the back of my head that was like, this is the time to quit your job. Right, right. And just like, just see if it works. Right. For three or six months. Right. Uh, so I, I started the exit plan. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were offering a page rate to well, the Silence of Friends. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, it had not even crossed my mind that I could get some kind of an advance payment mm -hmm. that I could potentially live off of. Okay. Like, even five or six years before that, sure. Uh, Sam Keith cold called me. Mm -hmm. A world of cold calls. Mm -hmm. Wanting to know if I would draw two different books of his that he had been writing. Um, and I met with him, and I made some sketches. We'd have these long, great phone conversations. Sounds great, cut. Yeah, a very kind dude. Yeah, he's a very thoughtful. Yes. Yeah. But that was like 2002, 2003, and it never even occurred to me that somebody would pay me money in advance of Right, sure, book. sure. So I was like, there's there's just no way I can do that. I, sure. I had to turn it down flat out. Sure. Well, this is the downside of the, the, the DIY yeah, yeah. experience, right? Like, that, I, I, like I, no, you do stuff. it yourself. It's not. They yeah. don't involve other people. And it's, it's, yeah. it, to this day, it's really nice that especially friends of mine who are more squarely millennial cartoonist friends have a very different and I think more self-respecting mindset about like, you know, don't do X if you're not going to get paid. Yeah. Don't do blankety blank. Sure. If there's not some kind of agreement. Before sure. That. Things that I, I think generally cross, like did not, they weren't givens with, mm -hmm. with my cross section of cartoons mm -hmm. or maybe it's just me, mm -hmm. but I've, it's been nice to kind of pay attention to my millennial cartoonist mm -hmm. friends, uh, to be like, Oh, right. You can ask for that. Yeah. yeah. You can make sure, that. sure, sure. But to, yeah, to think back at the times where that never even crossed my mind. I'm like, oh, I just turned down a, not one, but two books with mm -hmm. the creator of the Max. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that's cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll get over that someday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, so you were, you were doing Swallow Me Whole at the time that Silence was offered to you? Or had it been completed at that point? just been published. Okay, so. just been published. Yeah. Okay, great. So that was actually the thing where Jim and Mark saw it. I, I okay. think it ape here, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they called me the next week. Yeah. Yeah. And, um... And what was it like doing a 200-page book? Because, as you said, at that point, you had only done 30, 50 sure. pages at a time. Well, uh, basically, when I started Swallow Me Whole, I dreamed it up in 2001. I was ready to, I was ready to draw it in 2004. Mm -hmm. But I basically, I was assuming I would self-publish it. Yeah. So I was like, I'll make it four 50-page issues, 48-page right. issues. So I just... Like, I sat down, and in a week, I drew the first 20 pages, penciled, inked, lettered. It was completely done. And I used that. Uh, and I guess I, I bombed at 
an attempt to pitch it to Vertigo. Right. Um, and actually, it was entirely my fault. Uh, Shelly Bond uh, emailed me to be like, if you have a book idea, pitch it to me. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I don't know how to do this. Right. Uh, but yeah, I sent that to the Top Shelf, who I'd already been pen pals with for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically, Chris Staros was like, we want to do this. Uh, basically because you're not as good of a writer as you are an artist, stop inking your pages. Right. We want you to pencil the whole book and, you know, letter in your writing or write a script or whatever. And then we'll hash out the problems and go through the editing. And once it's done, you can just burn through the inks. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I've actually been using that method ever since. Hmm. Uh, and it, it works well and it works well with the top shelf gang. It's also helped me you know, in my growth so that I'm slightly better of a writer mm-hmm. uh, than 15 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, that having that expectation and waiting for a certain kind of feedback that I know is going to change my story. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, did you re-pencil the stuff that had already been inked up to that point or, or was it just like from page 40 on? Yeah, that pretty much states. Okay. Yeah, the first 20 pages were mm-hmm. in 2004, mm-hmm. and the rest of the book was inked in 2007. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty fascinating way to work. It's, yeah, it's weird. Also, the first 20 pages have no nib pen. It's all brush, yeah. like 100% of it. Uh, and then I when I hit it again, and yeah, I was like, oh, well, why am I doing that? Sure. So. Yeah. Top Shelf then became your home, mm-hmm. like the next four or five projects that you've yes. done. Um, what do you think that, that they bring to, to comics that other publishers don't? Well, um, on, on a more practical end, I mean, granted, Top Shelf is owned by IDW now, but in speaking sure. of it in a general and long-ranging sense, uh, top, like, top Shelf is a fully independent, like mid-level indie company you know, like, like Fanographics and D&Q, they, they all have a diminished capacity to pay you in advance, sure. some advance money. But if you can find a way to finish your book without mm-hmm. needing the advance money, mm-hmm. they have as good or better of a, a skill set and potential to, to get your book out there mm-hmm. than a more stat, like a you know, book industry linked mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm that can pay you more money. Sure. That's kind of the trade-off. But like the old, basically if I didn't have two kids, this Mm. wouldn't even be a consideration in my mind. But like the older I get, my my entire top shelf generation, uh, many of them are now parents and have had to make more practical decisions as a result of them not being able to play that game anymore. I lucked out because right as I became a parent, I started work on Marge. Yes. And because we did, we had no idea what the potential scope or scale of Marge right. was, but knowing it was going to be bigger, right. Top Shelf was like, look, we will pay you a page rate as nice. an advance okay. uh, so that you can do this, and that is the thing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, that that helped all that happened. It helped smooth over the anxiety of now having, you know, a small... Mm-hmm. A small child sure. and making weird comics. Sure. Um, and that bet really paid off really, 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 really like, well, right? It's like, very transformative. That's life pretty changing. transformative. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, 
I just want to ask like one or two more questions about Top Shelf sure. and working with them. I mean, the thing that I've heard from a lot of people is that is that working with Chris like makes your comic better mm-hmm. at the end of the day, right? Because yes. his suggestions are are like he gets it, right? He actually gets yes. comics. Yeah. Yes. So um, I guess yeah, in talking about Chris and in talking about Lee. Uh, also, as a as a as a main editor in Top Shelf, and also mm-hmm. essentially my brother from another mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee is a very detail oriented person, yeah. and he and I have very similar deep interests in particular rabbit holes, and mm-hmm. we we both want to entertain each other, mm. going down certain rabbit holes, uh, and so when the two of them are looking at something that I make at the same time. Chris uh, is really good at seeing, at seeing the big picture, at seeing larger themes and yeah. connections, and then both of them also function in terms of like knowing you and caring about you and pulling things out of you mm-hmm. that they can see emerging in the book mm-hmm. and not being afraid to ask you about them or mm-hmm. talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Chris, uh, like he's a, a just a very he's a very patient, temperate dude, and yeah. so. For each of the three full-length books, it'd be a series of probably five or six different drafts of pencils, yeah. and we would go through long conversa- long phone conversations and email chains uh, where he would ask specific questions, and we'd work out a full edit. Right. I would redraw dozens of pages, right. send a whole new thing, and then bit by bit, draft by draft, it's working itself out. Okay. But yeah, like this is the kind of thing that... When I first pitched Swallow Me Whole to Vertigo, Shelley Bond uh, really helped set up my, uh, my lifelong relationship with editors in a very simple way. She was like, look, I know how you indie cartoonists are. Basically, I don't want to, like, I don't want to tell you, like, I'm going to change your book, but I'm going to change your book. Mm-hmm. And at, at the point, you need to know the point at which you are not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So know where that level is, know when you feel it so mm-hmm. that we're not wasting each other's time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we wound up not working together, but it, it made me mentally prepared for the fact that you're working with an editor yep. specifically to change your book. Yep. Uh, it's, it's not an oppositional relationship. Yep. You want them to change yep. your book because you don't know everything. Yep. 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 How, how often have you reached that point? Not really. There are a couple of times where, like, we like, uh, there's something maybe I'm not communicating clearly, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. Chris or Lee are missing a really fundamental, basic mm-hmm. thing that'll tie into like even like the book title or the setting, mm-hmm. something super basic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what that says to me is it reveals that I need to figure out a, a way to communicate something that's obviously very important to me yeah. in a more clear way. I, I got you. And yeah. so. It, that's I've never actually gotten there. Okay, okay. And when you say pencils, uh, do you mean like literally full, full pencils, or are we talking thumbnails? No, I pencils are very rough. Yeah. So like usually I pencil a page in twenty minutes. Oh, nice. Okay. And I spend yeah. at least eighty percent of my time on the inks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I feel it's it's hard to say this without like tooting my horn. I, I feel really at home inking. I feel mm-hmm. very confident doing it. I mm-hmm. I just like listen to music and I enjoy myself and I love putting ink on paper. Mm-hmm. So, in a like I'm not actually thinking much, but essentially I'm thinking with the ink. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I just try to make my pencils legible enough so that an editor can see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And with March, I had to make them a little bit tighter. Um, 
in order to communicate certain information on an editorial level. Sure. But not that much more clear. Top Shelf came to you with March. Is that right? Yes. Well, first, Andrew and Congressman Lewis got a publishing deal with Top Shelf and no artist. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading the press release and be like, oh, what a cool project. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But I was busy. So I was like, back to work, mm-hmm. doing silence for friends mm-hmm. and any empire. And then a week or two later, Staros called me and was like, I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. our press release, but I strongly suggest you try out mm-hmm. for the role for mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z reason. Mm-hmm. And, but beyond that, then he just gave me Andrew's email address and it was exactly like deciding to collaborate with anybody else. Yeah. Except it just happened to be with John Lewis. Yeah. Was there a script already done at that point? Yeah. The two of them spent about two years making a basic working script for March a single volume graphic okay. novel that was going to be like 270 pages. Um, so I got that, mm-hmm. you know, after I did my demo pages mm-hmm. uh, and within 48 hours of reading that, that script, I emailed everybody back. It's like great book idea. Again, just letting you know, it's going to be 600 pages. Right. So if you're cool with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. then just let me do my thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that was always the plan was to have it be a big brick of a book. Uh, and then uh, at Comic Con in 2012, uh, Andrew and I finally met in person for the first time. Mm-hmm. And basically, we were like, well, just to take the pressure off, let's break it up at its natural chapter points mm-hmm. and just make it three books. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that that blew open the doors of possibility for March in terms sure. of readability for sure. younger people, sure. people to grow into it, sure. uh, the ability to comment on the world. And like the situation on the ground through the books, yeah. we didn't like that changed the entire legacy and, and arc of March. Yeah. Just the decision to like make it a manageable seeming project and take the pressure off. And the it? I, it, I mean, you caught lightning in a bottle there in a, in a, at what point did you realize that you had caught lightning in a bottle? Was uh, had you had you finished volume one at that point? Uh, I think okay because because March book one uh, is written with a much more limited viewpoint. I mean, it is John Lewis as a young person, as a child, as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, not just from a narrative standpoint, the world is limited; it's much more subjective. Mm-hmm. But from a historical perspective. Uh, like the Nashville sit-in movement has very little documentation, relatively speaking. Sure. And these are things I didn't appreciate until I really got into it mm-hmm. to recognize that, you know, the civil rights movement was able to be the, the you know, society-changing success it was in part because of this expansive media coverage, which yeah. basically forced it into homes across sure. the country as part of the, the discussion. But because of the limited level of documentation in of the events in book one, I was kind of like set free to just draw the book. Right. I didn't have as much accountability. Sure. And uh, I was able to kind of play around more on the personal and subjective moments. And I also was not considering the potential readership of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, previous to March book one, I was I was against considering who might read the book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also in that required ignoring 
or being choosing to be oblivious to you know the gatekeepers sure like bookstore people librarians sure. teachers sure who actually choose books and put them in front of people sure and help facilitate that um but also like content wise it was weird because like you had this hate speech and physical violence and like you have physical mutilation sometimes in the books and like plus you have just like basic profanity yeah and so we're like this is all historical. This all really happened. Right. We're not going to not put any of this in the book. So basically, like, we're like, well, we'll just make a book. Sure. Let's see what happens. And it also seems to me like if you're, if you're being honest about a presentation of a work, you, you can't think about sure. the audience because that would paralyze you, right? Well, typically, yes. Yeah. This is where March is utterly unlike anything I've ever been involved with. Sure. So once the first book came out, and, and really... That's that may be one of these moments where March Book One lucked out a little bit in terms of what we put into it and the risks that we took. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are like I did script. There are like f words scribbled in background speech mm -hmm. all throughout that book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's barely legible, mm -hmm. but like things could have gone a very different way if those right. were slightly more legible. Sure. Um, but once as soon as the book came out in mm -hmm. the summer of 2013. A lot of it was physically uh, interacting with teachers who would bring their whole class yeah. to be John Lewis, parents who would bring their entire families, intergenerational comic reading sure. families and groups uh, that, made, that made us, A, like recognize what, it, what we had done. Mm -hmm. But I had already started book two, and it made us realize, like once people would tell us, like, oh, I'm teaching this in my history class mm -hmm. in school we're like wait you're teaching not just like this is something in your english class you're teaching this as history mm -hmm. which it is history mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. but but it takes kind of a leap for a comic to be in class as history but then all of a sudden we're like wait how do you keep a comic in class yeah. how, how do you keep a history book in history class right. we didn't know any of the guidelines the parameters sure so we had to give ourselves crash courses like in the ways that we were that we were fortunate and blessed to have this sort of explosive embrace of March. We also were just lucky enough that we had enough lead time to actually figure out the guidelines yeah. that would keep this work of history in its place mm -hmm. uh, to give it a fighting chance to be, to be accepted as history. So can you give me an example of something that would have oh, well, you get had, that out? Well, we had to learn, well, A, we had to learn boring shit like, Common Core standards. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But I mean, that's like if you don't if you don't follow those to the T, especially something like. Uh, well, it's it's funny to say this. Like, three years ago, this would be this would seem a little bit of a stretch, and it's not now. It is the explicit goal of a considerable portion of the people running our running our country to remove this history from our collective shirt. Sure. Uh, sure. So, like, there is an active interest in mm -hmm. taking something like March out mm -hmm. in classrooms mm -hmm. if it's something that people latch on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, like the boring stuff, like Common Core standards, like mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't give a shit about that, but we had to. We're like, sure. and and I think Andrew for being really serious and seeing things I couldn't see. He's like, mm -hmm. Nate, no, like we need to all learn this method of making March. Like of, of assembling information, of knowing how to actually use quotes and use sources. Right. 
but also it changed the way like I add like in, in the first book I added a good amount of incidental dialogue and stuff um, and that's just the way I make comics and especially mm -hmm. with like these crowds sure stuff but we got to a point where the visibility of March and our level of accountability was such that you know by the third book if we didn't have a quote for something, we could not have someone mm. saying words that were not. So there's there's a accurate. level of pressure then. Oh, there's a level of pressure already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah things got really crazy. Yeah. Like there, but that those actually led to the moments, these moments of revelation and even participation in the historical record mm -hmm. that I never would have guessed in my wildest dreams I could get to be a part of. Right. Like in March book three, it opens with the awful bombing of the 16th street baptist church in birmingham alabama we knew that it was on youth sunday we knew that it was as sunday school was ending and before church started we knew all these things but when it came and we knew that the mom of one of the four teenage girls who was murdered just went down to the basement bathroom to check on where her daughter and her friends were yeah. and went back up to her sunday school class so I knew I had to draw a Sunday school class, but I was like, hey guys, obviously there's a Sunday school lesson. So what's a Sunday school lesson? I have a couple of ideas. And so I had a couple of things that I thought would be topically relevant. I was like, I obviously have to have the Sunday school teacher saying some stuff so that he can be interrupted mm -hmm. by the bomb blast. And Lee was like, you don't understand. There was a Sunday school lesson. Mm -hmm. So if it's not the actual Sunday school lesson, you cannot make it up. Yeah. This is history. Yeah. Uh, but because March came along at the exact moment in which a lot of these records were either being digitized for the first time or uh, freedom of information requests were becoming more accessible, mm -hmm. uh, Lee, as an editor, was doing some fact-checking and, for example checked out some random NPR piece that was an audio only, you know, set of interviews about the bombing of the church. Mm -hmm. And so it had not been transcribed into text, but in the audio interviews on the MP3 file mm -hmm. found out what the, the actual Sunday school well, nice, was, nice. but it, it literally did not exist in print in mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And so later in the book, there was a major revelation that, that Lee discovered about Rosa Parks speaking at the end of the Selwyn Montgomery March on the steps of the Capitol. And uh, he only found that out. It was two days before it went to print. He found it out because he was, you know, crossing his T's and dotting his I's mm -hmm. and fact checking. And in the FBI files, thanks to COINTELPRO, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI had bugs and plants right. everywhere in the crowd during that big speech recording people, shooting people. Uh, but there is an audio file hidden away in like the Indiana Jones vault mm. of the FBI. Top men. Then had never been transcribed to text. There's just an open MP3. Wow. And he's like, oh, this is publicly available now. Mm. So he listened to it and was like, holy shit, you guys, Rosa Parks, this has never been documented in a book before. Uh, and basically he transcribed as a text. March book three became the first book to ever include to complete, yeah. to add this component of history. Yeah. Uh, but it, like, that's, it changes my relationship with what history, with what sure. historical documentation is. Sure. If this thing that we're doing has a handful of incidents in which we're actually correcting the historical record, 
you know, like it's just really, it's really weird what falls through the cracks mm -hmm. and why, and sometimes mm -hmm. for the dumbest reasons, mm -hmm. but like, it seems stupid to, for society at large to forget that Rosa Parks spoke to bookend the civil rights movement, yeah. in John Lewis's opinion yeah. at this talk. And yet, because of the way we, we learn about it as a society, if the documentation isn't there, our concept of historical truth changes too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, no, that's uh, that's kind of amazing when you think about it. Actually, um, you're you're a white Southern male. Yes. Was was there was there uh, any place where you struggled with the text, or or struggled with your own relationship to the text, or? Uh, in general, a lot of the anxiety about portraying, portraying the history or portraying the individuals as characters and doing the cartooning, uh, telling the story, a lot of that was worked out during the Silence of Our Friends, mm -hmm. which was also 95% uh, true to life and was a little bit fictionalized to fit in one book. Mm -hmm. But uh, that sort of helped me... I don't know, it's kind of like a boot camp, I guess, that helped me be more prepared for March. Mm -hmm. But there were some ways where, like, yeah, Mark Siegel and Costa at first second, you know, basically had to, we had a old chit-chat where they had to make sure that I knew that I was actually being too timid in mm -hmm. visual depictions of African-American characters in the book. During the course of Silence of Our Friends, I developed a more, we had to have a lot of conversations about the use of yeah, like the use of hate speech and racial slurs because Mark Long, it was about Mark Long's life as a kid in the 60s in Texas. And uh, his entire point for including a lot of the, a lot of the use of racial slurs and hate speech in the book were that he wanted to emphasize just how casual it was. And in that regard, like it's throughout the book, his character is developing an awareness of the casualness and sort of comparing that with what his parents are perceiving about it and what his neighbors and what the town at large is. Mm -hmm. And so that level of discomfort as a reader mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. um, but once we got through that book, basically one of my, you know, one of my deals for March was that especially once we had to do a little bit of composite dialogue for just like crowd people or sure. whatever. Um, I kind of had to put out a, a harder line where like I was comfortable with everything that I had to do, but there were certain things where like, uh, you know, into this day, like one of my things is I won't use a racial slur unless it's a direct quote or something that really happened. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that it is fair to use it. Um, Part of the record. As, yes. But and, and obviously like that has even more leeway with telling John Lewis's story and the story of the civil rights. Movement. Absolutely. But even like Cakewalk, which is a story that my wife Rachel wrote about a different dimension of American racism, you know, in Northwestern Indiana in the eighties and her experiences of, of like adults failing at imparting why, uh, why you should or shouldn't do certain things. Uh, you know, like, with each project, I had to arrive at a place where I was okay, including what I was including. But when it comes back to March, like 
I mean, yeah, like there were like very, there were troubling and weird moments, uh, but it would always come back around to it not being about me. My job was to tell John Lewis a sure, story sure. through his eyes and in his words. Sure. And he was trusting me to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, really, like, that's that's the difference between, like, actually being concerned about something and being anxious about it. Yeah. Like, almost all of it is just anxiety. Mm-hmm. Once you recenter yourself around that, you're like, oh, right, I do have a job to do. Mm-hmm. I'm chosen to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you... You ended up winning the National Book Award, right? Which, like, you're the only comic that's. I mean, not you, but the whole team, right? I, yes, that's pretty amazing. Is this it's is wild? It, is this is this like a black tie affair? Oh yeah, I, yeah. yeah it's, I I uh, I made a fake tuxedo. Okay. Yeah, I bought a bow tie, and then uh, I I think actually I had to buy a cummerbund. Okay. And the rest was like my regular suit looked tuxy enough. Right. But I was like. Like, that's good. I, yeah. I saved like a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. I was like, bow tie changes everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, it was, it was a black tie affair. Yeah. That, I, uh, it, that, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it, in a way, it's one of those industry changing things like Mouse winning the Pulitzer. Uh, uh, I, I feel like, you know, do you feel, do you feel weight from that now? Right? Like, cause I'm sure at the moment it was like, Oh my God, this is a big deal. But like, well, has it changed the way you create comics? I guess is the question that I'm asking. Uh, the short answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. Backing up half a step, when we won it, it was like a week after election day in 2016. Yeah. And like everybody's heads were spinning. And so within the National Book Awards crowd, it was just this very empowering, supportive thing where like, we are people who believe in ideas who make books and we are here to celebrate ideas. Mm-hmm. And it was just this, this nice little respite mm-hmm. from the hell, from the hell mouth. We just didn't finish. Sure. Sure. Uh, but the next morning I had to get a red eye flight back home to commence daddy duties again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was mid November. So I was like, Oh, maybe on Thanksgiving break at some point, it'll hit me that March won the national book award. Right. And then, I, you know, I was like busy doing dad stuff. And then my parents showed up or whatever. And I was like, ah, maybe over Christmas break. Yeah. It'll hit me that this is a super big deal. Right. And then Christmas break passed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, now I'm just busy again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not that simple. But in a lot of ways, like the work never ends. And it, it, finally, I was like, I was backed up on work. Like the nuts and bolts of life never stopped. Sure. The clock in San Dimas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so in short, um, it is nice after that. Um, and being afforded, thank, I mean, a lot of it is thanks to the visibility and sales of March uh, that afforded me a little bit of a window where I could just draw and write coming in yeah. for a whole year, basically. Sure. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, like now that I finally have a book out after March... Um, not only was that very much like returning to my home planet, mm-hmm. but it's, it's kind of in terms of perspective, it's nice to be like, oh, right. Like sick transit Gloria, yeah. you know, like you've always got to put in the work. Yeah. Like people forget about these things over sure. time. Sure. And what's important is that you're continuing to move forward with new ideas. Yep. Uh, you know, and, uh, I don't know. So like we, we continue to try to, you know, 
it's it's more important than ever, obviously, to keep March alive in the yeah. public consciousness, but also it requires more conscious effort to keep it alive. Sure. It's it's less self propelled. Um so it's kind of like Actually, I, almost, I almost feel like today it's more self propelled just because of who's in the White you know, House. I just, you know what I mean. Well, you, would, I, you would think so, yeah. but like they're along the course of March of making March book by book, my my understanding of the people who are putting in their own independent effort to get March in schools yeah. and in bookstores, yeah. like you know, these are things which are independent from my ability yep. to control. Absolutely, and yep. the, and. When March was the only thing any of us did, mm-hmm. we were able to devote all of our energy sure. to staying on top of that. And so once you go on and you have other things to do, Congressman Lewis has the world to save. Sure. sure. Uh, you see you see how that, you know, trails off of it. Sure. So but all books all books have their active lifespan. Sure. They have their, their legacy lifespan. Yeah, but March is gonna be taught in schools for the next Fifty years, I hope almost so. certainly. I hope. So. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to blow smoke or anything. I just feel like that it's it's one of those rare works that's going to do that, and Thanks. Thanks. and that's that's a pretty fantastic thing. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. Where so you so you were working with other writers for six seven years there as your prim- primary cartooning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it was it a gear shift to go working by yourself again, doing your own work, your own voice? Well, throughout the process, like I finished Any Empire, my previous solo graphic novel in early 2011, came out that summer. Uh, and so I was already writing Come Again by that point in an earlier version. And throughout the March trilogy, I would, every six months or so, I would probably spend a month where I was trying consciously to spend more time writing and penciling it. Mm-hmm. I'd pencil like 40 to 60 pages mm-hmm. and throw it in the stack. I would decide like the casserole had to go back in the oven. Right, right. But also like the demands and responsibilities of March simply did not provide for the bandwidth required sure. to work on it. Um, so over the process of those years and years where I was doing, where I was collaborating with people on books, Specific, and especially with March, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a storyteller, my concreteness and my ability to communicate with clarity mm-hmm. got much better. Sure. Uh, and I was so, I was just in such a tunnel of work that it was hard for me to see those things advancing mm-hmm. until I was done and I was actually, you know, ready to finish penciling this book. Yeah. Um, but yes, to speak specifically of Come Again... As soon as I was ready to wrap up the pencils and start inking, I could tell that there had been a long, yeah, like the pressure cooker is slowly, slowly refining those things that I could bring back in my weird Mm -hmm. intuitive stories with a new kind of concreteness and clarity. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, also, you know, it's just like it's satisfying in a way that collaborations can never be. Sure. Was it easy to use those muscles again, though? Uh, Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That yeah, like that was the thing where there was it was as if I had never stopped yeah, just nice. drawing my own weird nice. stories every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's nice. It, it's always there waiting for you. Yeah, let me uh, let me go to all these people here who have been really good. I've been speaking for an hour. I really, I'm sorry. I do this all the time. I know, but I get into the conversation. Um, do you guys have any questions uh, uh, for Nate? Uh, yeah, please. Um, working uh, by yourself, I was curious if you had any 
if you did like a false script when you were doing come again, or if you just kind of obviously like written down like what this page is going to do, if you just like penciled it straight out. Generally speaking, I don't script things. And uh, I never have. Like I, one time I did kind of an outline of Swallow Me Whole just so Top Shelf could see what was going on. And when I had lines that I knew were in it, I would just throw them in there. But it was an unstructured like Word document. Like this is, a, this is what happens in it. It was not a script. Um, I, yeah, I've never done, I've never done a script except I did a, I did a screenplay for Swallow Me Whole a few years ago, which was very fun. Um, so my general method basically is like, I almost immediately know what the big idea is, like the major questions, the major themes, the thing I need to express. Um, I usually have gathered kind of like vignettes, like little moments, of like overheard things or memories uh, little slivers of scenes or experiences or lines that I might, that I might think of, or that I might've overheard someone say, uh, and I kind of like when it comes time to actively write something like come again, uh, once I, once a character develops who I actually really care about, and I'm like, oh, this is clearly a main character in this book. Uh, it comes down to taking all those vignettes and all those like moments and physically putting them on little tiny pieces of paper and getting on the floor and visually moving them around to see if they have, if the scenes might have, or the moments might have relationships to each other. And then while you're doing that, uh, being mindful of what the bigger themes and questions are and seeing how these scenes, these moments might relate to the bigger themes. And basically I'll just play with tiny pieces of paper for like a month. And then, you know, before long, a story actually starts to emerge. Um, now, is this over the whole 200 plus page scope of the book? Or are you kind of doing it in chunks? Yeah, like, well, for Come Again, it, it had a lot of false starts. And so in the end, now the book exists, like that was sort of to my advantage. Um, I... I would go through these periods where I was penciling a book and it wasn't even an hour geopolitical reality. Um, it was on some, you know, alternate mm -hmm. earth like sign my fantasy world. Uh, but each false start as I was bringing it back to our world, then back to Arkansas, then to the Ozarks and a weird hippie village. Um, by that point that we had gotten into this world building that's in the published book, I didn't need to to do those exercises as much anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like the major things have been worked out. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of a lot of moments, like the appearance of Arkansas's fictional first punk band, Diamond Mind, happen. I mean, it's separate from the plot. Basically, mm -hmm. it, it's something that has to do with the larger tone and themes of the book. Mm -hmm. But it has nothing. They just Boba Fett the book. Right. They have nothing to do with the right. Book. Um, but that, that's my favorite part of the book. That's the best part to draw. It's the mm -hmm. best part to read. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but yeah, like those things will emerge. And again, this sounds like cliche, but those are moments where you're like, oh, like the book is making decisions on its own. Sure, yeah. Like yeah the characters yeah. develop a life of yeah. their own. Um, and, but those are the moments you wait for where you're like, oh, obviously this is going to happen here. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't have a reason worked out, but because I'm not as strong of a writer as an artist, 
Um, this is where in order to make A to Z sense, especially through the course of this book, I've discovered that I have to do a lot of, I personally have to do a lot of reverse engineering to figure out what happens in the plot to justify certain things that I want to draw or see or whatever. The best, like the most concrete example of this is the way Haluska, the main character, looks. Well, really, let's just even go just to her hair. I designed her in this exact outfit in 2008. Uh, and I, I was like, this character looks cool. I want her to look like that. Let's go with that. Um, but once I figured out where and when the story is taking place, I was like, I was like, okay, we're in Northwest Arkansas in the mountains in the late seventies in a hippie village. Uh, and you know, like there were certain things that I come up with, like her weird, like futuristic new wave stripy black and white dress. I had to reverse engineer her exact age so that she could have had a go-go dress in the mid late sixties as a teenager that she held on to and then repurposed unstitched and restitched in this new design. But with her hair, I was like, okay, she lives in a rural community. Obviously there are farm animals. It's like, why is she shaving her head? I was like, well, clearly there are lice or ticks. So I'm like, okay, so there's a thing where there are lice and she has to shave her head. But I was like, why is she, why is only half her head shaven? And then, then you have to be like, okay, so maybe she gets somebody to shave her head, but they have to stop. Why do they have to stop? And her kid already, Jake already existed at this point. I was like, well, that'll be her kid. So she, she gets her kid to shave her head. They're helping out with farm animals. Obviously, like she has lice. And then why does she stop? And then I'm like, okay. And by this point, I had a kid who was old enough that uh, we, I think I was just on the cusp of, okay, secret, all little kids get lice at some point. So let's just get that out of the air. Your kid doesn't have lice until they have lice. So this was right around the time that in real life, I finally encountered lice. Mm -hmm. It sucks. Okay. But, you know, then I was like, okay, so maybe there, there aren't lice. So I had to be like, okay, she has to be looking and noticing that she can't find lice. And then maybe he's having too much fun getting to use clippers for the first time. And he just <laughs> won't stop, but she makes him stop. Right. Um, and then I'm like, okay, so then you have to play that scene out just to its natural conclusion. Like that's why only half her head is shaved, but it involves what he perceives and, or possibly imagines is happening based on what he's learning with his expanding worldview. And he wants to participate and be responsible but she's not even sure if he's lying or not in the opening scene. Like she doesn't get a straight answer. She's like, okay, just stop. I need to know, did you see anything in my hair? And he's just like, they're all gone now. <laughs> and then he just goes back to playing with the clippers and she's like, well, fuck it. I can't, you know, like I'm not going to get an answer out of this. Um, and that became an entire scene just to rationalize the way she looks. But then that also means that it, it, it immediately extends the life of the character beyond the pages of the book. So literally, her whole adult life, until we open the book, she has looked a different way. The first time we see her is the first instant she looks the way she looks in the book. And so the lifespan of the book is the entirety of her looking that way, just right. through that window of time. Um, 
And uh, it's funny because like you design a character and you don't, you know, like I never thought until I had to think about uh, what the fact that this is not her default look. This is not her intended look. Right. Um, but that I like that her ex-husband Gus appreciates the futuristic getup she has in terms of the repurposed, apparently recently repurposed go-go dress yeah. into this new outfit. Yeah but that he appreciates the futuristic look of her hair and she doesn't have time or interest in telling her that it was because of a fake lice scare. Mm-hmm. None of that made it into the book, but it's in between the lines of the script. Nice. But, nice. So I did, just have to make shit up to draw the things I want to draw. Did, did that answer your question? Do you have a follow-up? I mean, I have follow-ups, but there's other people. You're a better man than me. Very <laughs> All right, other people. Who else has a question that you would like to ask? Well, this letter um, coming off of March, which was so research intensive. Um, what was your relationship coming back to your own work with research? Well, what was nice was that I, in terms of the discipline of doing reference and research for March, um, I was basically set free again. I could, you know, I could have just pulled all this out of my imagination slash ass. Uh, and I'm, com- you know, I'm, this is my home state and, uh, you know, I was one year old when this takes place, but I was comfortable enough that I could have earlier versions of the book. Yeah. Were sans research. It was strictly from the realms of my imagination, but thanks to the change in my creative mindset of March, it, it made it so that I can no longer I can no longer not ask those questions. Like, um, a lot of it is just pursuing my own casual interest. Like, um, I guess really the setup of the, of Haven station, the village itself. Uh, when I, when I started whipping up the village and everything, I'm like, okay, it's this off the grid, intentional hippie community. Cool. I know what that looks like. Uh, basically. And that, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, there were certain things where, like, I wanted to have a turntable or light switches. Or I started drawing light switches without thinking about it. I was like, wait, like, how are they getting electricity in their individual homes? And then I was like, well, it obviously has to be solar power. But when were commercially, commercial-grade solar cells available? And then I'm like, oh, 1978, how convenient. And then you do a little more, like, cursory research. And you're like, oh, and in fact back to the landers kind of led the charge with, you know, home use of solar cells. I'm like, how convenient. And and so sometimes I'll luck out with things like that, but I did not have eyes for that kind of stuff before March. Um, Also with something like Diamond Mine, the, the Arkansas's first punk band, Arkansas's first punk band was called the Malls, but they were out of 1979, Northwest Arkansas. Uh, in my, my whole punk life, I've been aware that the Sex Pistols went on a two-week tour, mostly of the southern United States. Their last show ever was here in San Francisco with the immortal, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated line. Uh, but before they made it here, it was strictly the American South. And Little Rock, like Arkansas, or Little Rock, didn't get a punk scene until the mid-80s uh, after Black Flag played there on their last tour. But... Sex Pistols played Memphis, Dallas, San Antonio, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and skipped Arkansas. 
So all those places immediately got punk scenes in the late 70s. Northwest Arkansas got a punk scene in the late 70s because a handful of those people went to go see the Pistols in Tulsa. Now, I knew that, but prior to research mind of March, like that meant nothing to me. But all of a sudden I was like, wait, that's a real thing that happened. Like, who are the 100 people who saw the Pistols in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1978? And then you're like, oh, there are local newscasts on YouTube that are actually covering the Pistols show in Oklahoma. And you're like, those are the individuals. These are interviews with these real people. And so I had this band in mind that was emerging, but I was like, wait a minute. One of the people in this band, at least one of them, is one of the hundred people who went to go see the Pistols. Uh, And then, you know, like in Please, no, it's not in Please Kill Me. Yeah, no, it is in Please Kill Me. uh, there's an account of going on tour with the Pistols on this tour. And specifically outside of the Tulsa show, uh, they stopped at a Waffle House or whatever, and there was a cowboy family. Basically, there's a cowboy dad with the whole family, and the teenage daughter had dre- basically made the whole family take her to go see the Pistols. And the Pistols happened to be at this Waffle House or whatever, and this is during Sid Vicious, who could not play bass, by the way, uh, Sid Vicious at the height of his like shock value uh, was basically just trying to freak out this cowboy family and sat down at their table and was being leery or whatever and stabbed a fork you know like into his hand just to freak them out and it didn't freak them out that much so it was kind of a wasted <laughs> kind of crucial injury if you're on tour but anyway turns out that that family uh, according to what research I've been able to do the dad got irate as the band was like leaving town after the show because the, the, his daughter wanted to like hit the road with the sex pistols. And they're like, like, no, thank you. We're, we're just going to go. We're going to leave. We're going to drive to New Mexico or whatever. And the dad was like, what do you mean? It was like trying to fight the sex pistols in the parking lot that they wouldn't abduct his teenage daughter because that's what she wanted. And it was like, what are you leaving? And I was like, there's something here. And, and that whole family is probably still alive. So like, but I just tried to use that as a springboard instead of like pretending that that's actually that person. Sure. But you know, like there are these moments where like the interests that I might have casually in life. Now I have a new set of eyes. I think where I'm like, Oh, it's possible to actually find out information that's applicable with something I'm doing yeah. to enrich what I'm doing to make it less just kind of pulled out of my butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a follow. Go ahead. Michael. Uh, first, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, and you were talking about characters that have a line of their own and kind of them searing things. Uh, kind of a two-part question. One, do you see the diving mind and their abductees can going off into some other project you want to do? And also with the, the secret eater, what happened in terms of you getting your mind into that creature, that character? Did you find your secrets kind of playing off of it? Let's see. I think... In terms of the creation of the Secret Eater, um, in an earlier kind of sci-fi fantasy, otherworldly version of this book, uh, it involves uh, a, a city, an isolated city made of a weird substance, like a mushy substance, 
But at night, while everyone was asleep, the whole city rearranged itself. Everyone woke up and basically their whole economy, their whole culture was based around you wake up, you find out where you are, like where your job is, where your family is, where your friends are. But you have to be back inside by nighttime again or else like if you miss a cycle of this, you may essentially be lost forever. You know, like you it's imperative that you get these basic things done every day and it takes up most of the day. But underneath the city, there was kind of a static secret grove of trees and caves uh, and in, in more of like a wormhole quantum physics way. It was a way to kind of like bypass the entire changing cityscape and get where you needed to go. But it was a realm that very few people knew about. And then once I started to play around in there, this entity that emerged. And at that point, I uh, it was like, I decided that, you know, because like you're less afraid of something once you know more about it, once you know what it looks like, its name, where it's coming from. Um, so I wanted it to be formless and nameless. I wanted it to be nothing. So I had all these old drawings where I was like, well, I guess it has to be something. I made like this weird little like bean shape that had some eyes. And like that month, I started reading Gabriella Giandelli's incredible Interior Eye comic, which Fanagraphics uh, put out in the early 2010s. It's one of my favorite comics of all time. So if you can get it, if let's say you happen to be at a comic book store at some point, then I highly recommend getting it. But it turns out that that series takes place in a single apartment complex and it has to do with the interior and dream lives and relationships of all the inhabitants. But it turns out it's being controlled in dream time by this dark bean-shaped demon creature in the basement with these little eyes. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, well, I guess nobody's ever going to see my demon. <laughs> so, but, but once I, I realized that it had to be completely invisible, uh, and also when I realized that those forest grove things and the caves were where the characters were doing were participating in things that were more secret uh, more intimate more private uh that was before basically like the hippie vibe the eternal openness vibe the tension which makes that important and come again that didn't exist yet so once that kind of re-emerged in in the final version of the book where it's you're living in a community that thrives off of openness and knowing each other's business at all times. Suddenly there was a reason to have a saint, you know, like a sacred space for secret stuff and, and uh, a place to pursue private interests. Um, and then everything kind of fell into place, but I, I don't know, like I have a voice in my head for the secret eater, but uh, I feel like in nothing specific from nothing specific from my life entered into this, the secrecy subplots or the way the secret ear goes after them. Um, but the ways in which, like, I don't know, a lot of it changed pre-parenthood and post-parenthood. There are the ways more of like in a relationship sense where you withhold things from the people around you, but you can only... You can only like, you know, hold back people's access to, to the truth as it involves all of you for so long. And then as a parent, you have a duty to kind of 
whole, you know, to, to ration out reality, ration out truth at a kid's level. So they're equipped to handle the world, but to keep from like crushing their fragile souls. <laughs> uh, and so there is this weird protective tension there. Uh, after I'd already decided what the secret eater was and how it operated and everything, uh, I don't even remember how I stumbled across this, but there's this, uh, I see you have the secret of Kells. Mm. Huh. Interesting. It turns out that I discovered there's a Celtic slash Ethiopian god demon creature known as Cromdub or Crom Kruach or the Crooked Dark One that like the Wicker Man, the, the whole apparatus behind that, the celebration and the 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 dark entity, that's the same creature, Kram Kruach, uh, that appears to be originally Ethiopian, and then Ethiopian travelers went to what is now Ireland at some point, like in the Bronze Age or whatever, and lo and behold, it became part of Celtic folklore. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it involves like around July 31st in, in Celtic lore, beginning of the harvest season. Uh, if you've seen The Wicker Man, you know, there's like a human sacrifice in the Celtic tradition, it's a child sacrifice in exchange for, uh, you know, a healthy harvest. And, uh, and basically it goes back under the, you know, under the ground. You're trying to appease it. Uh, and I like the comparisons to like the, those who walk away from Omelas, the short story by uh, Ursula Le Guin of like the, sa the sacrifice a community has to make on a small but horrible level for to have their utopia function. Uh, but also I liked the idea that, well, I was like, if this, if this God demon creature can travel culturally from Ethiopia to Ireland, why can't it literally be the same entity that's like basically traveling underneath the earth to Arkansas? <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of ghost legends in Arkansas and I've seen some crazy shit in Arkansas. Uh, like my best friend's house at a poltergeist seen that i've heard it it's real i got kicked out of an apartment of mine by by a poltergeist it's real i've seen some weird stuff uh so i i like to entertain the notion that especially the arkansas that i know can be so wrapped up in folklore and in pursuing uh legends and demons spirits and a lot of young people's relationships to each other, in my experience, can be tied around that kind of thrill, that kind of possibility open, opening up. Uh, but I also like the idea that of all the legends that they were pursuing, that it happened that a component of it was very real and was actually guiding them when they were not aware. Oh, follow up? Uh, the dining light question, you nodded at the beginning. I don't know if you... If, oh the life that they have oh yes yeah so diamond mine or like i just i really i really got into diamond mine and the more i drew them the more i wanted to draw them and the more i wanted to know what brought them to make this weird almost punk band that didn't quite fit so they are going to be the main characters in my next graphic novel oh, nice. which is it's a book i've also i started writing it as a an autobiographical thing in like 2007 uh, and just never did anything with it. But the basic idea will be, I want to do a book that's about going on tour with a band of people you're very close to, but without the music. It's basically, it's basically 
eating together, sleeping together, and driving together, which is 95% of what it is to be in a band or to go on tour. And, uh, but the goal is to like always cut off a scene before music actually starts. <laughs> I haven't figured out how I'm going to do it. I've got like, I've got some time. I'm, I'm real backed up on my, my for hire work. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, as soon as they wrote, like it was nice that they could Boba Fett it and then drive off to the Oklahoma state lines knowing that I would see them again. You know, like I, at a certain point I knew I had to cut the scene, but I was like, I know I'm coming back to y'all. So I'll try to actually make this as teaserific as possible. When you talk about the difference between your for hire work and your, for you work, I yeah. suppose, um, wh what kind of a balance are you trying to achieve in your life? Well, it used to be that I was able to have a 50-50 balance. I would, I would simultaneously write and draw my own book, and I would draw someone else's book uh, who would you know, almost always be my friend, sure. someone I admire, sure. et cetera. Um, and I've been very lucky that I think all my collaborations have been with, with buddies. Uh, more or less, like, now that my kids are getting older and, like, they're so demanding. I, like, I've discovered I just can't do that anymore. And so, like, even when I had just one kid who was a baby, you know, I had a, a level of flexibility and it seemed crazy at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, oh, wow, I could just do whatever. I can still, like, uh, my time is very, very strictly regimented by what I have to do as a parent now. And so, like, I just turned 40, and part of that is being like, I know now that I cannot do what I've done for the last 10 years. Right. I cannot have a 50-50 balance. So my goal, my immediate goal after finishing Two Dead, which is my next book, it's written by Van Jensen. Um, and then I'm going to do another book with Cecil Castellucci mm -hmm. that we've been writing together for like three years. But once those are done, my goal is to figure out a way to just make my own weird conks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the weird crossroads part where if, thing, if I could figure out a way so that I can remain, you know, working with Top Shelf yeah. or essentially my family, and mm -hmm. it's an irreplaceable relationship, mm -hmm. um, then that's what I aim to do. But then also there's the second question, if I'm not able to do that, but I'm able to get a lot more money from a company owned by a book publisher, sure. but people who are not my friends, sure. not my family, sure. then that's going to be a, a whole different set of questions and sacrifices. Look, like this might be too pushy of a question, but I mean... Can can you survive off of the the back end of of March at this point? Just doing your own work going last forward. Year, last year I could. Yeah. Um, but basically it's like yeah, like March sells very well. Mm -hmm. uh, if I didn't have kids, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, oh, yes, yeah, definitely. But uh, like I have to make exponentially, like you know, it's sure it's not just like affording one person versus three or four people. Yep. But it's like. The more money you make as a self-employed person, you disproportionately yep. have to make more money yep. for taxes to yep. pay off. Yep. And it just disappears. Yep. So it's self-employed person, yeah, you know. It yep. very quickly puts you in an yep. impossible position. Yep. So Well, and you want so much more for your kids too than than you had. I mean, you want Oh sure. Like but, they're going to good colleges, I I assume, right? You know? That's up to them. <laughs> sure, obviously. <laughs> but but you're gonna be in the position, I mean, you're working to put yourself in the position where they right. can, obviously. Yeah. Right? And well, 
as soon as like when March was selling at its best, uh, that was the only, that was like the very first thing I did yeah. was be like, there's money to put away for yeah. college if colleges exist in 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Or, you know, like it's good for, you know, tools in the salt mines. Yeah. You just need to go work in the salt sure. mines for our overlords. Sure. Um, from the, you know, from the regime. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, uh, it's, it's outrageously more expensive just to survive as a family unit than I was prepared for. Uh, and so even though March continues to sell well, it still has not arrived at a point where it'll have like, I, where I actually know what its permanent baseline mm -hmm. level of sales is. Understood. Uh, and so yeah, I'm still kind of in that netherworld where I'm just like, still just continue to work as hard as I can mm -hmm. do as much work as possible mm -hmm. because you don't know when you don't know when you don't know when. Yes. Questions from the room? Yes. Jeez. Yeah. I was curious if you me um, being a part of like the punk scene back in the eighties, if you weren't a part of that group, would your do you feel like your art would be different? On yes. the day or like the direction you went in comics, would it be different? Yes. Um I think okay. While I was self publishing my yeah, dystopian guns and boobs superhero comics, I was already like putting out tapes and records of my bands, starting to make fanzines. I was in bands going to shows. All that was happening at the same time, but I was also every couple of months sub making submissions to Marvel Comics. <laughs> um, and even like once I stopped reading superhero comics in the pre-internet Arkansas, not being aware of comics that weren't superhero comics meant that like even when I was at SVA, um, and I had nothing to do with superhero comics. It it still pretty much seemed like if I wanted to draw comics, that seemed to be the path, the path. Uh, and it, so it was thanks to people unrelated to punk, at least at the time, uh, with my limited knowledge of them, like forcing a copy of I Never Liked You by Chester Brown onto my hands and be like, you need to read this now. And that being the book that changed my comics life forever. Um, and, or, but, but there's a little crossover too, like Al Burian, a cartoonist, zine writer, musician involved in both comics and punk. Um, he had some, he had some mini comics. One of them was called the long walk nowhere that came out in 96. And that comic predated my reading of, I never liked you by a year or so, but reading that comic, which just had to do with him walking around at night in his hometown in North Carolina and walking, you know, having memories of being a disaffected 12 year old and walking down the same streets at the same time. And then at the end of the comic, the sun starts to come up and he goes inside and makes a cup of coffee. And that's it. Uh, I, I wasn't even aware that you were able to tell a story where that's what happened. So that one Alburian comic is the thing that actually like put the crowbar in the door let me see that other things were possible and I never liked you uh, made me realize that there was an ocean of comics that were following different narratives but also laying out comics in different ways uh, like a lot of the I didn't you know I was I was like enamored and confused by the way Chester Brown was laying out his pages panel to panel but I didn't know until later that he would draw each panel individually and cut them out 
and then he would tape them on another sheet of paper to arrange them and arrange the flow. That's the reason I lay out my pages the way I do is thanks mm. to that book. Um, and that's the reason why I use so much black in my comics. Mm. By the way, if I highly recommend reading I Never Liked You, but if you do, you should go on eBay and get an earlier version that has black gutters and margins. All the new versions just have white. It's not the same book. Not the same book not, at all. Not the same Not book. even a little that's bit. What I'm yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I do think that in it, yeah, in my fiction, in my speculation, I think that if I still would have like gone to art school in New York City, but without the without the DIY ethic or whatever, uh, I probably would have stayed in New York and taken a more traditional path. And I probably would have started interning at Marvel because I grew up as a Marvel kid. And I would hopefully be drawing Daredevil or X-Men at this point because that would be my life's goal up until that point for sure. Um, so the desire was still very strong then, but it required people showing me that other possibilities even existed, uh, much less that I that I could desire those things or that I was interested in making something like that. Um, oh, yeah, go, go. Uh, when you got to SEA, or from my experience, when we got at the Academy of Art, there was this one guy who all he wanted to do was draw Marvel and DC. That's fine. They want to. That's totally great. The back of my head, I was like, why would you kind of like waste your time doing that? Do you have any like people like that and you were like shoving like oh no you got a word from the big shoe and that head you're like you want well this is i feel like that is inseparable from the ways in which comics as an industry and a community have changed in the last 15 to 20 years um yes there were plenty plenty of people in my classes like that however it wasn't as pointed i think it it wasn't as much that the question was even being asked, like, why would or wouldn't you want to do that? Um, I think I was closer to that perspective for the first half of my being in art school uh, before I was able to, to be like, oh, what I'm doing can be the thing I do. Um, but also, like, A, well, first off, we're in a really beautiful time in comics where folks from my generation who in the, you know, early mid 2000s started making self-published and indie work uh, are now able to have a catalog of, of creator owned independent stuff and are now being asked to write or draw or color for big two books. And all of, you know, like for those of us who grew up on that, that never goes away. I would drop, anything at any time not true i would draw anything at any time to draw the x-men yeah. uh and that's still like 70 percent true even though like i don't understand x-men when i read the issues when i pick the new issues up but i still buy the issues every three months or so i'll catch up and be like let's see if i can understand the continuity <laughs> nope uh, but yeah like um it's if you like matthew rosenberg he's a punk friend of mine from 20 years ago uh, we met at my band played a, a record release show for a band that whose record he put out. And we met by my buying a record from him on a sidewalk and we just sort of stayed in touch over time. Um, and so like he always had independent projects. I'm just saying that cause I'm staring at X-Men comics, mm -hmm. but like uh, we have, 
we have much more parallel paths than it would seem in that up until three or four years ago, like I even worked with him on a Ghostface Killer comic about five years ago. Uh, but, you know, like if any independent creator, I think who is over a certain age, I'd say over 30, because I think maybe that is where there is a, is the phrase a seawater change or whatever? Is that what it is? Yes, a, a sea tide bank. Yeah, one of those things happened where, you know, grow, it's not de facto that you grow up reading Marvel or DC Comics. But, pr but if someone is in their 30s, 40s, 50s, I think it's fairly safe to assume that, would, that was their experience as an independent creator. And a lot of that is thanks to manga being available on bookshelves in bookstores in America and like, uh, you know, a mass influx of female readers yep. who then grew up to be female creators changing the entire culture and industry of comics for the better. Uh, so these things, you can't, you can't extrapolate that from the equation. But what I am saying is that I don't see these, I don't see it as being as, as binary of a thing. I don't, what makes comics as a whole so good right now is the fact that people are like ready to bounce back and forth yeah. and people who are able continue to make big two work while they're making their own creator and stuff. Yeah. And, and a thing that I'll say is that, I mean, you know, we've certainly talked to any number of cartoonists who, who are doing creator own work, doing personal work and who are not exactly making what we would call a living at it. Okay. You know, um, and, and I think that even today, if you're looking at, I, I want to be able to pay a rent and have a family and do those things the easiest thing for a lot of people is, oh, well, let's just, let's just work at, at the big two. Right. Uh, because it's guaranteed money. They're paying you a page rate as opposed to you're sure. just getting, maybe it hits and maybe it doesn't, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you can see any number of what ifs sure. in your life where you didn't get March and you're yes. you right. Right. Yes. And but on the flip side of that, sure. if March didn't happen in my life, uh, like I had to turn down a lot of projects during the course of doing March. And so sometimes I do think about how, how utterly different life sure. would be in that all these other, yeah, other gigs mm -hmm. that would not have been telling the story of John yep. Lewis, yep. but would have been like, Oh, this is a good, this sure. is fun. It's with your buddy and you get paid money for it. But in a way it's, it's really only the last decade or so where that's actually been oh, viable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people yeah. who I mean, really, I wanted to do that for yeah. many years and it couldn't work and yeah. just the math didn't work on it, you know? Yeah. So, sorry, I don't mean to be a bummer. I just, you know, no, want to make sure we're realistic. About it. If, 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 if I, could, I would draw Spider-Man 20%. There you go. Sure. Yeah. Spidey's yeah. cool. Somebody has to draw Spider-Man. Somebody's got to draw. Somebody has to draw Spider-Man, preferably me. Yep. Somebody has to. Then Spider-Man has to come out every single month, no matter what. It's not, you know, it's right. not like a creator-owned book. You put it out when you put it out, you know? Yeah. Uh, do we have any other questions uh, from the crowd? No? Yes? No? Maybe? All right. It's like a couple. Oh, Michael's got one more. Uh, what is your favorite X-Men? Who's your favorite X-Men? Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for asking. <laughs> My favorite X-Men are Rogue, Nightcrawler, Longshot, uh, Storm. Uh, no, but Storm above Longshot. And then, you know, 
pe- people pretend like Wolverine is so he's like overdone or whatever. But I haven't been keeping up with X Men since nineteen ninety five. I'll put Wolverine at number five. He's an amazing character. Very good. I also don't know his real history. Right. So like I'm blessed by not getting into the swamp yeah. of continuity. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I won't Ro- say anything. Rogue is number one though. Yeah. Rogue is clearly the best X Man. Is that because she's Southern? Oh, I forgot that she's Southern. I'm I mean, I okay. What I really like about Rogue is obviously like you know being Captain Obvious. Her powers, her curse. Yeah, but like, no, exactly no. Which makes it, which is what makes all the good X Men X Men. But but like yeah. the the tension between yeah, it's what makes X Men a cut above yeah. other superhero yeah. comics. Yeah. Like the fact that it's fundamentally uh, a relationship book. It sure. is a soap opera. Sure. But the the fact that it it involves like like there are perhaps initially unintended reflections on you know like her objectification as a young woman going through puberty, but also as that relates to her mutation and, uh, you know, basically her power, her curse being her entire body. Yeah. And, uh, but then like the doubler where she absorbs, mm-hmm. uh, Miss Marvel's yep. Captain Marvel's power yep. forever and consciousness and has this weird, this, this battle that's happening. Mm-hmm. See, I stopped reading X-Men before this whole thing where she can touch people. Yeah. And I don't even know if she has Carol Danvers in her anymore. I don't think she does anymore. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. And it's like that's why it's able to touch people now. Yeah. Um, it's like the Cree DNA kept her from like evolving. Oh, she's. Oh, wait, oh, oh, I'll thank you, Doug. Wait, wait. Oh, God. Wait a minute. All right. It's an extra conversation. I just All right. know one thing. Yeah. She has Cree DNA in her? Uh, when she absorbed Carol Danvers' like, powers, she like somehow like. Her mutation to not Cree DNA. Okay. And the sure. like the Cree's whole thing is like they can't like they're like at an evolutionary dead end. So like she couldn't grow any stronger as long as she had Carol. I mm. see. Alright, I'm down with the X-Men conversation. I don't know, it's fine. Uh, but uh but I don't want to end it there. Um so uh let me let me ask you, let's 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 go to the craft lightning round. Uh you pen and paper, yeah? Yeah, all physical. Yeah, all physical. Do you do you scan it? Is uh, Yeah, I do I do. Yeah. The one, okay. I'm forty, so I my class in high school was the last class before there was computers in mm. my, my school. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> when I went to art school, my class was the last class before cartooning students were required to have any computer class. Yeah. I just did not learn shit about <laughs> how to use a computer in our craft. Right. So when I when it was time to scan Swallow Me Whole, I got my best friend to sit me down for two hours and teach me how to assemble multiple scans. Mm-hmm. How to use the eraser, how to use the pencil function. Mm-hmm. I really have not advanced much, <laughs> like, why, but I, I really haven't. Like, I don't know how to work in layers. Right. That's right. I don't know how to get another layer go. I don't know how to cut things out and drop them out. I I can't do any of that shit. But a lot of it is like, I know that I could just learn, but I don't have time to sit down and learn. So since it's working. I just keep going. Yeah. Occasionally, if something get, is like way above my pay grade, I'll kick it back to my friend who taught me in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'd like, Aaron, can you just fix this for me, please? Here's ten dollars. Nice. You know, and then she'll be like, there it is. Ten whole dollars. Oh, she'll, you know, oh, she'll be like, this took one minute. You're <laughs> like, thank you. No. Yeah, give me give me an hours worth of work at that rate. Yes. Right. Indeed. 
Uh, yeah, so all physical still. Yeah. But yeah, like it, it, it keeps me fast and I don't have time to slow down. So, so someone, someone kind of mentioned this in passing and I, and I, I, I gave a really flip answer. There's an awful lot of black on every page. Yes. Um, are you spotting these blacks yourself? Are you, how are you? There are only a few, like the, the, the super minimal chapter breaks that yeah. might have just the cave door or a glow. Yeah. Uh, those are the only ones where I won't take the black all the way to the edge of the pages. Right. Um, but usually you have to find a line like those, if I black them all the way in, the paper will, will curl enough that I can't flat. Uh -huh. But everything else, I just go all the way. And the kind of ink I use, Speedball Super Black Heavy Ink. There you go. I buy it in a pint jar, and I love it. It's just really tarry and stuff, but it always goes bad. But no matter how much ink I use, by the time I get to the bottom, it goes bad. So it it it's an incentive to be extra liberal with the black ink. Like I literally cannot use enough of it. It does not matter. Uh, That's an interesting craft note. Yeah. I can't use enough, so I've just got to layer it on. It's nice, though. Like, yeah. I do not consider my ink use because yeah. I cannot use it fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, coloring. Uh, are you coloring yourself? What's the deal? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So all my colors in this are done. Well, first, there's a gray There's a gray layer, a la March, um, that's a little more simplified, but it's still three layers of gray, just with the India ink that I water down. Mm-hmm. The colors are done using FW brand acrylic artist's ink slash watercolor dyes, but they're in those little droppers. And I buy a crimson process yellow and I buy like a Prussian or indigo blue. And I use those to mix up every single color. And very occasionally, I think just for the purples in that book, I'll add like a drop of black. Um, and then, yeah, basically it's like I pencil, I do the lettering, then I ink, I erase, I blow dry the page, then I add the grays, then I blow dry the page. Then I add uh, the the color layers and blow dry the page. Uh, so I had to step back up to a toothier paper for this to absorb the extra layer of water. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I used a toothier paper for March book one and went back to a smoother paper for two and three because um, it was messing up my lettering. So I had to figure out a new way to write the lettering for this book so I, it wouldn't, like, get rubbed off while I was erasing. Have you... Uh, I mean, I really admire the fact that you're hand lettering. Um, a number of cartoonists that I've talked to have been taking consideration foreign translations and things like oh, that. Sure. Like, oh, my God, I can no longer hand letter because we, we need to be able to just swap out the computer files. Well, I have noticed, like, that... Yeah, friends who do that, they'll still rule out the the balloons sometimes mm -hmm. and they just put nothing in them. Mm -hmm. uh, which seems like if you're going to go that far, you might as well just go ahead and letter it. Right. Uh, but yeah, number one, hand lettering saves time. Anything you, you letter, you don't have to ink. Cuff. That, to me, that's the bottom line. Uh -huh. Yeah, if you just go ahead and just write the lettering in, mm -hmm. that's that much more shit you don't have to eat. Mm -hmm. You can work faster, and it's fine. Uh, also, more importantly, uh, it's it's like the only way to actually make the lettering a part of the art, to make it a part of the experience of the book, and there there's potential that you will not see if you are doing them as separate components. Um it's, I don't know, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not going to die on this hill, but 
it's a little, I don't know, like, I'm not so sure that you can really, like, make comics without considering how the lettering is going to be integrated into it. Oh, I'd and, die on that. And have it actually become. Yeah. No, I would die. I would, I would, I would murder on that hill, frankly. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your, what's the process? Just because I've never asked this question before. What's the process when, when you're, when you're doing white letters on black? Oh yeah. Well, uh, is that more challenging? I mean, just. No, no. no okay. Uh, it used to be in my self-published stuff. Wait, weird. Was somebody still here? We were talking about gel pens and why? Okay. So we were talking about how the tools. Like even just the commercially available like gel pens, opaque white ink, whiteout pens, the chemical properties of these products have changed over like 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. So when I was self-publishing stuff in 2001 even, I was able to find a gel pen and just write straight on the black ink. And then this back in the days of photo stabbing where they'd actually shoot a, shoot an acetate or whatever of the of the of the page and it would be just a crisp, beautiful white. That kind of ink, like the brand exists, but the chemical properties changed mm. and it just stopped looking good. Mm. So now what's easier for me to do is I pencil, like um, I guess maybe I did this a little bit and swallow me whole and then I realized this is what I needed to do. Uh, if there's a section where it's a white lettering on black, you know, you pencil it in and then I'll letter it normally positive black ink on the white area and I'll erase it before I ink the page. I then scan the whole page, uh, like 1200 DPI. I convert it to bitmap I make it negative and I just save it for later. And then I just ink over the whole thing mm -hmm. uh, and erase the lettering basically. And then that's the only part that I actually manipulate in Photoshop is just dropping in the negative lettering. Interesting. Interesting. I'm glad I asked that question. I would never have, I would never have heard that if I hadn't thought about that. Um, all right. So, uh, I know you're doing run or you're I, participating in, you're, I, you're, I, a, I, with, you're a with, I, I am. Yeah. yeah. So I, I drew the first 10 pages okay. of run book one, uh, basically as a bridge sequence, uh, that functions on two levels. So the talented Afua Richardson, truly a Renaissance woman of many skills and strengths, uh, is doing a fantastic job drawing run. Uh, she's also in the same way that I had to like hone a new, crystallize a new style for March. She has worked out a new style for herself. And so Andrew's idea, once run started really happening, was for me to do the first scene so that aesthetically we could Brit, we as readers could bridge, uh, march and run and see them in a kind of digestible continuity. But also the scene that I drew in run takes place two days after the signing of the voting rights act, which is basically the end of March book three. So August, I think 6th, 1965, John Lewis is up in the white house. He's up in the Capitol. He's getting pens from LBJ, uh, contributing to one of the greatest steps forward in our grand society. The next day, he flies back to a small town in Georgia. And the next morning, August 8th, he's with 12 random activists and protesters back doing the work on the streets, trying to desegregate one church in America's Georgia. So we wanted to kind of iron in that 
yeah, it's not a clean, it's not a clean final victory. Mm -hmm. The work is constant. The work continues. And so for, fol yeah, for folks who are, you know, like paying attention to the chronology, recognizing that that's two days yeah. later, he's back in the yeah. streets, getting arrested, going to jail. Uh, but then also the second half of the scene is across town simultaneously in America's Georgia. There's a massive uh, white supremacist gathering uh, that's between three and 700 people. And it's led by this grand wizard. Um, but it's important and also relevant to today because we illustrate in this scene how the white supremacist extreme right has been paying attention to the strategies and tactics of the civil rights movement, and they are co-opting and adopting them. Uh, so the whole thing is it's this grand wizard, and he has all of his shitty white supremacists assembled, and he's telling them basically the snick do's and don'ts that we established in March book one. And he's like, okay, you know, you guys need to, you know, keep it together that you will not strike back if you're hit. If people yell at you, spit at you, you're not going to, you're going to keep your head forward. If you can't handle that, then you do, do not march with us. And then there's like, all right, assholes, let's go on a march through town. Um, but like even physically, the discipline of their marches are co-opted from the success of the civil rights movement and recognizing the ways in which, well, at first the Tea Party movement, but then developing into the extreme overt white supremacist right, uh, have been adopting the tactics, starting really with the anti-globalist and anti-war left at the beginning of the millennium. But in being able to use those and, and objectively speaking, possibly improve upon them in the most awful ways, in terms of being able to use technology to their advantage, like the echoes, I hated drawing that scene just cause like it was too, like it was too relevant to 2017 or 2018 where I was drawing it. And I was like, I don't want to do this. And now I have all these pages of assholes marching through the street mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do with them. Right. Like, I'm just like, I'm never going to sell these. I don't want to see who buys them. You know, like I'm not going to give them to anybody. Mm -hmm. So I just like put it in my closet and I'm like, well, See you later, assholes. What else do you have coming up other than this? Uh, well, I'm, the other backed-up book from March time was uh, a book, Two Dead, read by Van Jensen. Uh, it takes place in Little Rock. It's fiction, but it's based on some real weird stuff that really happened. In uh, It's like a, a, a supernatural detective story, but it's really about PTSD and trauma and mid-century America not not talking about the trauma of war and segregation at any price mm -hmm. immediately after World War II. Uh, I'm also working on a book called Tornado Children that does not have a home yet. It's a shorter comics memoir about raising kids in an era of necessary protest. Um, and then I'm, I have like this little comics essay I'm doing about new style, like consumer level style and aesthetic choices that are indicating the mainstreaming of fascism and it has to do with like you know stylistic choices with like punisher skulls and removing color from the american flag the allowances for facial hair in the military uh stylistic choices with like color choices and rim choices for pickup trucks and suvs anyway this is like the thing i'm obsessed with but i think i'm on to something i just need to sit down and finish it 
But anyway. So do we have dates on, on any of these? Or do nope. everything's still... Yeah, like, everything's just a mad dash yep. right now. Like, I'm yep. trying to drop everything and just do two dead. But at the same time, I'm like, well, like, these other books that are more worldly, like, the world, it's... It, this is a really weird time to be drawing comics that have... Uh, that have worldly relevance because it's like I can't finish Tornado Children or that weird styles of fascism essay. I can't finish them fast enough. Mm -hmm. Like if it's just a 100 page comic for Tornado Children, it's like if that takes me six months to do, we don't even know what the world will look like in six months. Sure don't. It's just like it's a weird position to be in when you're trying to like comment on the world in real time. But like the real real time is a little too real. Yeah. Bit too real, yeah. Yep. So like a Python bit. Bit too real. Yeah. All right. Well, so our book was Come Again. I want to thank you for this. I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I, I think it's a terrific book. Uh, if, you, if you're watching at home, maybe even years later, who knows, uh, go out and buy a copy of this. It's a terrific book. Uh, everybody here loved it. Um, uh, I'm seeing enthusiastic faces everywhere, so that's really good. Um Thank you, Nate, for coming out and talking thank to the you. club, and, and and thank you. I want to. Like, I have some quick notes for uh, the rest. Um, uh, on Sunday, I, it's Kids Club. I know none of you are going to come to Kids Club, but I still got to mention our Kids Club book is Cotton's Secrets of the Wind. This is this is a really this is a this is a good book. Um, the, the you know the, uh, the 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 pull quote on the cover is a Jeff Smith quote. It says, "Like the wind in the willows and animal farm together in one gorgeous graphic novel." which I really think describes this book in a really fantastic way. So even though it's a kid's aim book, I actually really recommend it to all of you adults. Um, on Sunday, we've got Jim Pasco, who's the writer who's gonna be here. Uh, we have a public signing with him at 11. And, uh, and Heidi Arnold, the uh, artist, is gonna join us on video. And then, um, and then next month's book, I don't have copies to give yes. to you guys yet, but uh, we have Lisa Hannawalt uh, coming for Coyote Dog Girl. It's a great um, book. I it's read a, it. It's a great book, and she's a great creator, and I'm really excited about this conversation. I think uh, you guys are all going to be, it's, it's going to be a good conversation. So uh, Lisa's here on uh, September 29th. So uh, put that on your calendars now. And other than that, one more round of applause, please, for Nate Flowers. Put that again. Thank you guys for coming out. Thank you for coming out. Thank Jordan for doing our tech. Thanks, Thank Julie and, and Doug for, for keeping the store together. And we'll see you guys next month. Take care. Success. And we're out. Very good. So uh, if any of you still need your books signed, I suspect he'd be okay with doing that. So if anybody has any other questions or wants to talk about anything, yeah, sure. right here. Exactly. So if you guys wouldn't mind.